Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today we'll hear from Scott Noel, an attorney for AMS Law in the state of Washington, with emphasis on labor and employment law and civil litigation. Scott's primary focus involves representation of employers in regard to citations from Washington State Safety Act, WISHA, and Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. In this podcast, Scott will be providing key insights into the world of litigation and how to steer your business away from these costly and damaging situations. If you have additional questions for Scott, please email him at scott.noel at amslaw.net. And to attend a future product information breakfast, you can email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. My name's Scott Noel. I'm with the WADA and Noel. Uh, for the last 15 years, I've been litigating construction defect cases primarily, but also have been doing worksite accident cases. Uh, primarily for insurance companies, I've been what we call staff counsel for Liberty Mutual, the Hartford, and other insurance companies. I'm now representing contractors uh, privately. Uh, by way of background, my grandfather was an engineer on my mom's side. If you've ever been through O'Hare, flown through United, gone through the underground with the walkways, he was the chief engineer on that. My grandfather on my dad's side was a lawyer, so I like to think I'm doing the work of both of them. Um, so through the course of 15 years of being a lawyer, litigating both construction defect and representing uh, contractors on worksite injury cases, I've come across a lot of different things that contractors can do to protect themselves, both to avoid litigation and once you're in litigation, on how to protect yourself once you're in litigation. The easiest thing to do is often the simplest. Uh, we had a video, unfortunately, we had a problem with the video. Uh, but the easiest thing is to is make sure your license is up to date. How many people here remember back in August, Big Bertha? You guys remember the news about Big Bertha? Mm -hmm. they, uh, they lost their license for a period of about 24 hours. How many people remember that? Anybody remember why they lost their license? They didn't, uh, their insurance, they forgot to renew their insurance. Now, it was just a small technicality, it only cost them $51, and luckily somebody caught it. But those are some things that you need to make sure. You need to make sure your bond is always up to date and your insurance is always up to date. Reason why, there's a statute, RCW 27080. This is more for you guys to make sure you get paid. Because according to the statute, if you're not up to date, if you're not licensed and somebody doesn't pay you, you can't go and sue that person to get what you're owed. That's very important to you guys, right? You want to make sure you're getting paid. Well, if your license is not up to date, you can't sue to get paid. That's very important to everybody, right? Oh, we're missing a slide somewhere. But so if you, for some reason, your license is suspended for one of those reasons, your bond is out of date, or your insurance is, is lapsed, make sure you correct that as soon as possible. There's a case out there where there's a contractor who's 
license got suspended because their bond had expired. Their license was suspended. It was suspended for a course of about nine months. They didn't catch it. And then they went to go sue the county because the county didn't pay. The Supreme Court said, well, too bad. You didn't do anything to reinstate your license for nine months. Had you done something sooner, that might be a different story. So the moral of that story is, if you catch it, do something about it quickly. Don't sit on it. So that's just something for you guys. Now, back in the day when your parents got into to the business, a lot of contracts were done with a handshake. Those are what we call oral contracts. Now, there's something in the law called statute of limitations. That's the period of time that people have to bring a lawsuit. Now, for contractors, there's the only thing you guys have to worry about on contracts is the t you got to get paid. That's what most contractors are worried about. What do I get out of the contract as a contractor? I want to get paid. Well, usually you get paid up front. So for statute of limitations, that's usually not an issue for contractors. Your issue on contracts for statute of limitations is the longer the period is for the statute of limitations, the longer you have to get sued. So in the state of Washington, for statute of limitations for an oral contract, it's three years. So for contractors, you would think oral contract is better than a written contract. In the state of Washington, statute of limitations is six years for a written contract. You would think as a contractor, you would think three years is better than six years. Why would I want to give somebody six years to sue me as opposed to three years? Well, the problem is under an oral contract, try to prove what the contract was for. Memories fade. And I can tell you, when I meet my clients, I welcome them to the club. I'm like, welcome to the club. In the eyes of the public, contractors are up there with attorneys, used car salesmen, and dentists. They don't like us. Unfortunately, everybody has a story of how their friend got, got sideways with a contractor. And unfortunately, if you ever go to court, there's not going to be anybody on the jury that worked in the trades. If the plaintiff's attorney is worth their salt, there's not going to be anybody on that jury that worked in construction. I can tell you I've been through numerous construction trials, and only once was there ever an attorney dumb enough to leave a contractor on that jury. And you want to know what happened on that case? They lost. Boy, did they lose. And that's why they don't do it, because they lose. But when you have an oral contract, that's the problem, is try to prove what the contract was about. Also, with the three-year statute of limitations, if you have subcontractors, the problem is the homeowner is going to wait until the very last minute to file suit. If you have subcontractors, every time I represent a general contractor on one of these subcon oral subcontracts, we're usually too late to sue the subcontractors. So that's another problem with doing all this stuff on an oral subcontract is we're usually too late to get the subcontractors into the lawsuit. So what's good about written subcontracts? It documents what is in the contract. 
There's no ambiguity. There's, everything is in there. You can also limit certain things, warranties. You can say what, it, what the warranty is. Attorney's fees. In Washington, we follow what's called the American rule, which says you can only get attorney's fees if it's provided by statute or by contract. In Washington, we don't have attorney's fees for negligence. You can only get attorney's fees if it's in the contract or if it's by statute. And in Washington, they can get statute for what they call Consumer Protection Act, which is very hard to prove. So how many of here do uh, have contracts where you have attorney's fees provisions in it? Now, of the ones that have attorney's fees provisions, do you have a lot of subcontractors? OK. Uh, my, my belief is unless you have a lot of subcontractors or your average contract is in the six figures, I do not recommend having attorney's fees in it. Uh, a lot of my friends who also do a lot of construction defect work are of the same belief. Um, usually, attorney's fees provision, if you do a lot of small contract work uh, or you don't do a lot of work with subcontractors, you end up getting bit by it. Um, but if you do do a lot of work with subcontractors, it's usually a good thing. Um, you can also put in a lot of conditions that, uh, that the homeowner must do before you do get sued, like mediation. You can require mediation before you get sued, which requires you to go to a neutral third party. Um, you can, Washington has what's called a pre-suit notice before you file a construction defect claim. I can tell you in that, that statute came out in 2009. Um, it's not a very good statute. Most judges here don't understand it. And it's what they call a dismissal without prejudice, which means if they don't file the pre-suit notice, um, the judge dismisses it, but they're free to refile it after giving you the notice. Um, but you can put it in your contract as well. Um, another thing is you can require arbitration. How many people here know what arbitration is? Okay. Um, there's been a lot of news articles about arbitration being a way to make litigation cheaper. In my experience, arbitration is not cheaper. Arbitration is actually more expensive. Uh, arbitration you have to go to a panel of arbitrators and ask them to do what you can do in civil court for free. And you have to pay the arbitrator for that privilege of asking them. And you have to pay your attorneys for the privilege of asking the arbitrator for that privilege. Uh, and the results in arbitration aren't any better than they are in civil court. Now. Washington has what we call mandatory arbitration, which is a faster litigation system where you have attorneys who act as arbitrators or judges, which is a faster system, which I have seen many contracts write in requiring suits to be filed and put into mandatory arbitration, which is a faster system which will get you through the courts a little faster. Um, I have seen contracts will, which will require mandatory arbitration be binding. The Supreme Court last year just ruled that that provision is invalid 
but they did not say that you can't require mandatory arbitration, but not allow it to be appealed to su superior court. So that's still an open question. What are you going to do? This is as far as your scope of work. Um, flashing. You want to stay away from vague terms like flashing. Uh, if you do a lot of work where you have inter, uh, where you have a lot of uh, trades that intersect, you want to stay away from using vague terms like flashing that may involve multiple trades. Because then I don't know how many times I've been involved in litigation where you have, say, a framer and a roofer or a cider and a roofer who both have flashing that may be in their scope of work. And lo and behold, nobody put in the flashing. And we have rounds and rounds of deposition trying to determine who is supposed to put in the flashing. <laughs> so if you're going to put in somebody's scope of work, saddle flashing. Make sure it says saddle flashing in somebody's scope of work. Uh, or put in roof rake flashing. Don't just put in flashing in both the roofer and the cider scope of work, because then you're going to get into a nightmare. Uh, you want to be make sure you're specific in terms of numbers, styles, and dimensions. You want to make sure you incorporate plans and details into your scope of work wherever it's appropriate. Uh, if customers to provide uh, items, you want to make sure you're very specific as to what your customer is going to provide. You want to make sure there's no ambiguity. That is a big source of litigation where the customer is supposed to provide something. You want to make sure that the customer knows what they're going to provide. Uh, if you're going to use subcontractors, make sure you identify that you're going to use subcontractors. Why this is a source of concern, I, I'm still mystified. But I don't know how many times I've been in a deposition of a homeowner and they go, well, they didn't tell me they were going to use an electrician. And I'm like, well, they're a general contractor. You expected them not to have a licensed electrician there. Just make sure you identify that you're going to be using licensed electricians, plumbers, specialty subcontractors. Uh, this is the biggest tip I can give you. Remember that when you're drafting your scope of work, if this is ever going to go to court, again, the judge probably never swung a hammer in his life. The jury, if the, if the plaintiff's attorney is worth his salt, nobody on that jury has ever spent any time in the trades. So you want to make sure that that scope of, of work is written so the jury understands it. Exclusions can be more important sometimes than what's in it, especially if you've been going back and forth with the homeowner on, on what this project's going to be. If this has been, especially if you've been value engineering it, taking stuff in and out, you want to make sure and when it comes time to the final version of the contract, you want to make sure what's been excluded is excluded. So that way they can't come back and go, well, I thought this was going to be in. No, 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 no. That makes sure that's out. Uh, along the same lines, down the road, uh, come down to uh, value engineering or change orders during the process of the work. Let's say uh, the scope of work, for some reason you were vague and said carpets. They want to upgrade the carpets. And they say, well, just take out this. Well, make sure you do a deductive change order and document it. And I'm looking at Mr. Kartek right here, uh, which reminds me of a 
a war story. Lawyers love war stories. Is it okay if I tell this one? All right. I was in a deposition years ago, and we, uh, Mr. Cartek's lawyer brought out a, 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 just a little sheet of paper. There was a building where the general contractor was pushing to get this building done, and the uh, framer did a very, very, very bad job of the openings, and the window openings were just, I could have framed it better. <laughs> they looked like they were framed by a 12-year-old, and they were just all kinds of racked. And the general contractor was behind schedule saying, we need to get these things in, we need to get these things in. And so somebody whipped out a notepad and just said, the window, window openings are not square level and plumb. We will put them in, but this will void the warranty. Had the, had the superintendent signed it, they put it in. Sure enough, they leak like sieves. But they've waived the warranty. Yeah. Yeah, but when you run into situations like that out in the field where the homeowner or if you're a subcontractor and the GC is pushing you to do something that's wrong, don't do it. Document it. If there's something that's wrong in the field, document it. Don't just go along to get along. You know, um, that's, I don't know how many times I've seen litigation go bad because, oh, they told me to do it. Well, why'd you do it? You knew it was wrong. Well, because, you know, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you don't do it, you're going to get damaged for delay. Document it. Send them a letter. You want to document the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And it's as simple as just sending them a letter saying, we told you in the field, this is a bad idea. You directed us to do this. We will do this. It's going to void the warranty. As simple as that. You know, you want to make sure you document things that go wrong in the field and save that. Create a file, save it. Emails, anything. You know, and just put the onus back on the other party. If you don't want us to do this, let us know in writing immediately. Which, thank you for reminding me about that. <laughs> um, you know, permits, it's another item that gets litigated a lot. I know a lot of contractors exclude permits from, from the project. You just want to make sure that you identify if permits are the owner's responsibility. Just make sure you identify that. Uh, how much of a writing is needed? There's no magic formula here. The only things that are required is price and what you're going to be doing. So if you're doing a kitchen remodel, just the price and kitchen remodel. Now the more specific you are, the better you are. But there's no real magic formula. Again, now I know a lot of people use form contracts that they got off the internet. Uh, they may have paid a lawyer to do this contract 10 years ago, 20 years ago. They're using the form that their granddad gave them. That's fine. Uh, my recommendation is to always periodically have a lawyer check it up. Laws change. The, the legislature is always passing new laws. Uh, the Supreme Court is always changing their mind as to what's a valid indemnity clause, what's not a valid indemnity clause. Um, you know, they saw something from the Supreme Court of Minnesota, and they're like, oh, that's a good idea. We're now going to go with that. Um, you know, the new thing that they're doing is what they call the, um, uh, that used to be called the economic loss rule, and now it's called the independent duty doctrine. They've been calling that for five years, and ask five different lawyers, you get seven different answers. Nobody knows what that is. So um, 
you know, it's always a good idea to have a lawyer every once in a while review your contract. But always, 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 you draft your own scope of work. You guys are the professionals. You know what you're doing. You should be drafting your own scope of work. Bond versus insurance. I'm, sorry, I'm moving a little faster trying to catch up on time here. Uh, bond, you're required by statute to have your bond. Most people don't know, but by your contract with your bond, you're required to pay back whatever the bond pays out. So by contract, especially con by statute, especially contractors are required to have a bond of 6,000. General contractors are required to have a bond of 12. Now, if you have a customer that makes a claim on your bond and your bond pays out $4,000, you're required to pay back that money to your bond company. And if the bond company paid legal fees to the lawyer to defend the bond, you're also required by contract to repay those legal fees. Some bond companies don't make you repay the legal fees, some do. It all depends on what bond company you have and how much legal fees they had to pay. Um, most attorneys that represent homeowners that do this a lot automatically sue the bond when they sue the contractors. Why? By statute, they get attorney's fees when they go after the bond. Now, most there is no rule here, no set rule for insurance companies on whether they defend the bond or not. Some insurance companies automatically defend the bond. Some insurance companies automatically don't defend the bond. I worked for Liberty Mutual as their staff counsel for eight years. They had no rule. Some, some adjusters would say, defend the bond. Some adjusters would say, don't defend the bond. Some adjusters would say, it's Tuesday, defend the bond. It's Friday, don't defend the bond. So the rule here, my rule would be, as soon as you get sued, immediately contact your insurance company, say, hey, defend me, defend my bond and then go find an attorney and say, I just got sued, my bond just got sued, help me. So that way your attorney should be able to help you get your insurance company to defend the bond, and if not, they can put in a defense for the bond. Because it's not that hard to defend a bond if you've got an attorney defending the insurance company. Because it's just as simple as putting an answer that says, yeah, whatever the insurance company says is the defense for the contractor, me too. <laughs> It's not that hard. It's not that difficult to defend a bond once you've got an attorney defending you. Um, the other thing is that bonds cannot assert what we call coverage defenses. So they can't say, oh, well, that is what we call their work. So we can't, you know, we don't pay for their work, so there's no money there. Um, they can't assert coverage defenses. Um, the other thing is that if another contractor owes you money, as a contractor, you can't make a claim against the bond. But as a contractor, if you can classify your dispute against the other contractor as a material dispute, you can make a claim for the material you're owed. I've done that in the past, where some of the money that's owed is for material. We can make a claim against the other bond for the material that's owed, but not for the labor. Insurance. Now, insurance is the other thing you're required to carry by statute. The good things about insurance is the insurance company can't go back for you for anything they pay out to the third party. They also can't come back after you for anything they pay in legal fees for defending you. Um, 
They also, um, but they can assert what they call coverage defenses. Now, how many people here have ever been sued? Okay, one person's had that privilege. Now, if you get sued, and this is what happens, I would say 98% of the time, if you get sued for what we call construction defect, you get this letter that's called a reservation of rights, which they usually say, we've received your, your suit, we've appointed Scott Noel of the law firm of Nawada and Noel to defend you, but we may not be paying any damages that you're found liable for because of, and then they go on to cite anywhere from four to 25 pages worth of policy language for the reasons why they will not pay for any damages. And the number one reason is what, they, what we call your work. So for example, if you're a framer and the, in a shear wall, the shear wall calls for nailing every five inches on center and you put nails every six inches on center. The insurance company is not going to pay to go back in and put nails every five inches on center. That's called your work. They don't pay for that. But there are ways around that. We call that, we, we have what we call get-to costs. We can find coverage for getting to your work, to repair your work. So while they won't pay to repair the nailing problems in the shear wall, they will pay for taking off the siding and the WRB to get to the shear wall to repair it. So there is coverage to get to that. Or consequently, let's just say you are a cider and you mislap the WRB. We have a lot of people who come up here from California where it doesn't rain and they don't know how to lap the weather-resistive barrier. So they start up one side and then come down the other side. So a lot of times you have alternating sides of buildings. So as a consequence, you have water, water damage on half the building. Well, the insurance company is not going to pay to repair the, the WRB. But because you have water, water damage to the OSB, they will pay for the damage to the OSB. That's what we call the resulting damage. So if you ever get one of these sued and you get one of these reservation of rights letters, I highly recommend you get what we call a coverage attorney to help you get coverage. Because when in Washington we have what's called the Insurance Fair Claims Act, and when they are determining coverage, they're only supposed to look at what we call the complaint. It's called the four corners. They're supposed to look at the complaint itself and if within the complaint it looks like there may be covered damages, they're supposed to provide you a defense. Because in Washington, the duty to cover you, to defend you, is greater than the duty to, to indemnify you. Excuse me, I'm, I'm a little sick today, so I'm starting to, to feel it. So again, the duty to defend you is greater than the duty to indemnify you. So if you're ever sued, you want to make sure that you're covered for insurance. Subcontractors. How many people here use subcontractors? A lot of you. All right, how many people have written subcontract agreements? Okay, you want to make sure you have written subcontract agreements. There's three key issues that can come up when you're using subcontractors. You can have injured workers, construction defect issues, and safety issues. For injured workers, how many people know that if you have an injured worker on site, that injured worker can sue you as a general contractor? All right. 
How many people know that if that injured worker sues you, you won't be able to sue the injured worker's employer? If you don't have a written subcontract agreement where that injured worker's employer waives his immunity under LNI, you won't be able to. That's one of the reasons why you need a written subcontract agreement. You need to make sure that there's a waiver of LNI immunity in that subcontract agreement. You also need to make sure that your, L, your uh, subcontract agreement has defense and indemnity agreements in there with all of your subcontractors. So let's say you have an electrician who's working, has an employee that's working on some wiring, and then your plumber comes in and flips on the switch. Well, you want to make sure when the employee of the electrician sues you, you're going to be able to sue the plumber and have him defend you and pay for your attorney's fees. Well, if you don't have an defense and indemnity agreement, you won't be able to do that. You also want to make sure that your subcontract agreement has your subcontractors name you as an additional insured, and that additional insured is primary and that your insurance policy is what we call ex excess and non-contributory, which means the subcontractor's policy has to be exhausted before they go after your insurance. Because trust me, it doesn't take much if somebody's seriously injured before it starts affecting your policy. On construction defect issues, if you issue warranties to your, your clients, you want to make sure that those warranties flow down to your subcontractors in their, in their subcontract agreements. You also want to make sure your indemnity agreements are broad enough that it includes any con construction defect issues that may arise. Um, that used to be a, an issue a couple years ago, but I think that's pretty much uh, shaking itself out. Again, additional insured is something you want to make sure is in your subcontract agreements. You want to make sure that the policies that they get for you uh, covers both ongoing and completed operations. Uh, again, attorney's fees, um, that's a question you want to ask, you know, what's the value of the contract that you're working on? How many subcontractors do you have working for you? Safety issues, um, just real quickly, uh, you want to make sure that your subcontractors provide the safety equipment to their employees, if not as general contractor you need to. Uh, asbestos, you want to make sure that there's a good faith uh, survey in place. Uh, if not, you want to make sure the owner or an upper tier subcontractor gets it to you. Um, some, some of the issues that we're seeing coming up, uh, again, again, are potential lead and silica issues. Um, and uh, got through that just in time, it's 8 o'clock. Uh, got to open up for some questions. Hold on, Kevin, I'm going to come to you. This is recorded, so we want to make sure all questions are on the recording. Here you go. Hi, Scott. Uh, Hi. If you could back up the slides a little bit. I had sure. a, you went kind of quick after the indemnity agreement. Sure. Um, you had a couple things you said I didn't quite catch. That. I was hoping you could repeat. All right, which, which, how far back? You were talking about the indemnity agreement, probably two or three slides back from the end. Uh, indemnity? Like right here? There? Yeah. All right. And if you want to, I, I can give you out my business card and I can email the, the presentation to you as well. Okay, great. Um, yep, 
I'm good, thanks. Okay. Did you have a question, though? I, I, I just missed that part. I think it was brilliant, Kevin, how you pulled out the piece of paper and someone in your company did and said, hey, if we install this, then I'm sorry, this isn't under warranty. And you had them sign it. And that was probably major protection for your company. We so. The, yeah, we had the architect and the general contractor, architect and general contractor both saying, you've got to go do this. It's going to be liquidated damages if you don't get to work on this. And we're like, oh, we don't think the substrate is correct. But the architect says it is, uh, okay, but sign here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was smart. Yeah, it did keep you out of trouble. Any other questions for Scott tonight? Yes. Uh, subcontractor uh, additional insured. Yeah. Uh, is it important to have, those, to have them provide those on every project they work on for you, or is once a year good enough? Um, it's, if it's, are you talking about the uh, endorsements? Uh, correct, so. Uh, the, the certificates? The certifi yes, the certificate, yep. Um, as, most of the time, as long as you have a written subcontract for each project, um, that should be good enough. Most insurance companies, as long as it's in the written contract, that's good. I mean, the better project, pro the better, um, the better, the better, oh, sorry. The day quill's kicking in. The uh, better process is to have a certificate for each one, but if you don't have it, uh, most insurance companies, as long as there's a written subcontract that requires it, that is good enough. I know at least Liberty Mutual, if there was a written subcontract that required their insured to name the general contractor as an additional insured, they honored it, so does Travelers. Not every insurance company does that, so it's better practice to have a certificate of, you know, a, a certificate for each project. But if you don't, it might not be death. So I would say the better practice is to have a certificate, but I wouldn't be losing my head if you don't for past projects. Good question. That was a great question. Yes. Um, so, I mean, j just kind of in general, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, you mentioned a letter getting a reservation of rights from somebody who wanted to go ahead and sue you. Probably not your favorite letter to get. Uh, no, but reservation of rights comes from your insurance company once okay. you are sued. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. But, you know, from the initial notice of a lawsuit for, uh -huh. you know, these types of suits for either a homeowner or a construction project, you know, the average time to go ahead and complete that suit from beginning to end. And I'm also just kind of curious, is there an average cost to go ahead and actually defend, a, you know, a case that... Maybe it would be similar to this. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, the, good question. Several, several different parts there. Um, it, uh, as far as average time, uh, from one, if, if one is actually filed, uh, in King County uh, for a construction defect suit, if one is actually filed, you're looking probably at about two years, two and a half years from when one is filed. Um, and that's actually probably pretty quick. Uh, if it's in one of the outlying counties, uh, Snohomish, um, you could be looking about three three years um, because there's no case schedule, um, and they can they can drag it out if they want to. Um, let me see the. Um, I had one. It was a commercial project. It ended up taking from the time I took it over to the time it went to trial was four years. Um, 
it was a larger commercial project, but it was only owner versus my client who was a large subcontractor. And it was about four, four, four and a half years. Um, let's see, that one involved a lot. Um, what type of, are you looking just more for your type of work or? Just, just curious, I'm, you know, so I know that there's you know, many people that will do commercial projects. I mean, if anything, we'll do something that is light commercial and mostly residential. And so, yeah, because that, that one was. Shorter, I, I would imagine. I mean, instead of four years, so yeah. it's four months. I don't know. That seems like a long time. Yeah, the yeah, most light, uh, well, most residential, I would say your cost of defense would be probably about thirty to forty-five thousand in insurance uh, defense attorney money. Um, probably another fifteen thousand for expert costs. Usually, engineer. Um, that's what we usually go is with an engineer. Um, yeah, and then yeah, for. Uh, I know the one I did was technically light commercial. It was uh, the one I was telling you about, the four-year trial. Uh, it was a five-week trial uh, down in Vancouver. Uh, it was a uh, two-building, 500-unit uh, mini-storage facility building, uh, which I got a defense verdict on. So I was able to uh, make a motion to tax fees and costs. My fees and costs as in-house counsel was 175000 <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, and the George, the judge awarded me seventy-five thousand. So, are there any other questions tonight? These are great questions. Yes. Our new member Keith, here you go. Do you foresee any time or any circumstances under which some of this? ridiculous amount of paperwork to cover ourselves ever gets smaller. I just had to sign a 62-page subcontract agreement to do a $25,000 subcontract on a $168 million project. 62 uh, pages. The more money that's involved in the project, the more pages are going to be involved in the contract. Um, and the simple answer is no. Uh, the, uh, I was at Liberty Mutual, they called me the sick one. Uh, nobody wanted to do construction defect but me. Um, because, just because of the sheer amount of documents involved in it. Um, and it's just the, the more digital we become, the more documents are involved. Um, you know, just because of the, by the time I left Liberty Mutual, discovery was coming in on hard drives. Uh, just because of all the emails, uh, just the nature, you know, the, we're supposed to be a paperless society which just generates more paper. Uh, that's, that's the, the unfortunate answer is everybody generates more emails and more duplicates of everything. Can we please give Scott a hand? <laughs> <laughs>